Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today we are speaking with Mike Maynard, Managing Director and CEO of the Napier Group, a $7 million PR and marketing agency for B2B technology companies. For 14 years, Mike and his team have helped mid-sized B2B manufacturers identify, attract, engage, and drive sales opportunities with customers. Mike has directed major PR and marketing programs for a wide range of global technology clients, reaching over 30 European countries. Prior to the Napier Group, Mike worked as an electronics design engineer for companies ranging from GEC Marconi to DDA. A special note is his time at IDT Inc., an American semiconductor company where he moved into the role of European marketing manager. He was awarded a master's degree in electronic and electrical engineering from the University of Surrey and an MBA from Kingston University. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Catherine. Great to be on the show. Napier Group uses a combination of positioning, content marketing, search engine optimization, website development, among other tools. How does that help a manufacturer drive their B2B prospects and sales? Well, that's a great question. It sounds like we're doing an awful lot of things that are very complicated. Um, But the reality is, is that uh, when it comes to marketing, there's no single magic bullet to actually drive more sales. Um, And so what you've got to do is you've got to go out, you've got to make people aware of of who you are, what you do. You've got to explain uh, the products or technologies you're offering, get them interested, get them engaged, want them to be able to start talking to you, begin that conversation, and then ultimately drive them to becoming a customer. Um, And that requires like lots of touches over a, a fairly long period of time. So what we try and do is we try and reach, um, you know, our clients, customers through a range of different channels, um, because that's the way that you get that engagement over a period of time. And it really is typically for most manufacturers. It's it's a long term sell. Very few uh, manufacturers, particularly in the B2B engineering space, which is where I am, you know, can actually go and make a sale within a day or two. It's quite often a long time. Um, our, our record actually is a client who builds baggage handling systems for airports, um, and they have uh, multi-year sales cycles. And in fact, their their longest sales cycle is about twenty years, which is which is an incredible period of time. That is some long-term planning there. Absolutely, no. They they spend a lot of time talking to the airports, um, but you know, from from when they first know a terminal is going to be built until um, actually the, the terminal is up and running and the baggage hand, handling system is there. It, it can be you know a lot of years, and actually very rarely less than about six or seven. Um, and during that time, they've got to keep those customers interested and engaged. They've got to stay top of mind, basically, for those customers. Um, and so what they need to do is they need to reach people across a range of different channels, and that's what we help them do. What are some uh, other case studies you can share? I I read about ABB's uh, 3D quality inspection and control robot that Napier Group successfully promoted. Oh, I love um, ABB Robotics. They they do such cool things. So um, they're great at taking um, their robotic products and putting them into different situations. Um, And so rather necessarily, you know, using the robot in quality inspection or using it um, uh, within manufacturing, they'll take it and they'll um, actually go and put it, for example, I think this campaign you're referring to was one where they put a robot in Selfridges shop window in um, uh, in London. And so we had all the shoppers going by seeing the robot actually in the window. Um, and that was really cool. So I think, you know, it's interesting because a lot of manufacturers, they make products that, that feel very technical and, and maybe not that exciting, but actually 
taking your product and putting it somewhere else can be really interesting and really engaging. And so, you know, we, we love that campaign. A lot of it was driven by ABB. They, you know, that they are very open and very willing to try creative things. Um, and it worked really well. And we've got some amazing uh, coverage for it as well. And that might actually help them with their workforce shortage too, if people are, you know, if that is appealing to young people. Well, I, I mean, this, this of course is one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, when I started in marketing, um, there were lots of engineers and, and typically recruitment wasn't a huge problem. Um, and so clients were not thinking about how to get employees to want to work for them. Now things have changed and it's obviously very, very competitive, particularly in technology and where you're looking for, for engineering stuff. Um, and so by doing things that are fun, a bit different, um, you know, that can really grab the attention of someone who's not necessarily in the industry um, and make them think, you know, I, I'm an engineer, I, I could go work at AB Robotics and do cool things like, uh, you know, build a robot that sits in a high street shop window. All from a simple shopping trip. Yeah. <laughs> um, what types of manufacturers uh, you know, make, make up your customer base generally? You know, what are the most prevalent needs your team addresses? An interesting question. So if we look at our client base, I mean, it kind of splits into three areas. We've got, got some clients that don't really fit, but basically we have clients who make electronic components. So typically semiconductors or silicon chips or other electronic components. Um, we have clients who make um, what we call industrial automation or industrial technology. So ABB Robotics would fit into that. And then we've got clients in the uh, communication infrastructure sector. So um, clients like Nokia um, who make uh, communication systems. Um, and it's interesting because they all have very much the same problems. Um, they typically have a group of customers who are fairly well engaged um, because these guys are sending, selling, you know, big complex capital equipment or, you know, complex designing components. Um, and so they tend to have quite long relationships. Their challenge is growing their, um, uh, their business by finding new clients. Um, and so we do a lot of work in terms of, um, you know, really trying to talk to new audiences. And I think this is, something that um, manufacturers generally need to think about. Um, quite often when you talk to manufacturing companies, you know, they're doing well, they're not growing super fast, but they're growing, but really they're tied to a specific um, group of customers they know. Um, and they think they know everything about customers because they're talking to the people who work with them, but actually there are other groups of customers elsewhere that are working with other manufacturers. Um, and to me, it's, it's really important to go out and try and reach those other groups because quite often one of your competitors may be doing something differently that a certain group of customers really values. And um, once you understand that as a manufacturer, you can go out, address that and actually start reaching more and more customers. So to me, I think it's about, you know, finding new customer opportunities and then, you know, and I hate to say it, this is kind of like the, the buzzword of marketing, but get them to engage. Um, but, you know, start talking to them. And, and whether that's through email and email marketing or whether it's literally the salespeople picking up the phone and asking, um, I think it's important to get a conversation with those people who aren't your customers. Um, and it's tough. I mean, I get that it's tough. It takes time um, and it takes hard work to find the people who are not talking to you, but are talking to other companies. But it really is worth it in the long run. So does your company offer them the um, outside view of where they could market, you know, this, so doing that market research so that they can see where there are other industries, other types of customers that they could access? So it's an interesting question. We're not a, a market research company. So we've run products, uh, projects where we've 
gone out and we've talked to customers who aren't buying from our, our client, but are buying from other companies. Um, but typically that's not really where we play. That's not, that's not our specialization. Our specialization is getting those customers to talk to our clients. Um, and from my point of view, typically that's a good idea um, because our clients are selling incredibly complex technical products. Um, and they're not selling, you know, simple um, uh, products. And today, very few people are. I mean, even if you look at, you know, simple stuff like fixing nuts and bolts, um, it's no longer a case of what size uh, bolt you need. It's all about finishing. Um, it's all about um, the levels of quality. It's all about, you know, the environment it's going to go into. It's much more complex. And I think particularly um, in the States, in Europe, you know, manufacturers are focusing on the more complex, the higher value products. And that's very hard to ask someone who's, uh, um, you know, in an agency who's maybe working, as I say, with communication systems one day um, and then with semiconductors the next to go out and have this really in-depth conversation. So whilst there is a role for it and certainly, you know, as an initial engagement, we, we do do that with clients. I think actually manufacturers they have to get talking to these uh, potential customers themselves, um, which is a time investment. But I think if you look at the, the potential benefits, it's a really worthwhile thing to do. Yes, it's definitely uh, to, to get that voice of the customer, voice of the new customer. So that, I can see that that's a tremendous value. And um, so where do you see they the, the your clients usually get stuck in terms of distinguishing their products from the competition? Again, we're talking about an you know, increasingly complex environment where there is already a lot of customization. Yeah, this, this, is, this is really interesting. And I think if you look at what's happening, it's becoming harder and harder to make things that are, are genuinely different and genuinely can't be reproduced by other manufacturers. Um, so maybe, you know, 30 years ago when I started as an engineer, um, you know, bigger, better, faster, smaller, cheaper, whatever it was. I, I mean, they were all great ways to differentiate. And there were ways that actually you could maintain an advantage over a period of time. Um, you know, if you had the fastest product, you probably had the fastest product next year. There's the chances of that. Maybe in five years time, not so much the case. Um, with manufacturing technology and, I, I mean, frankly, just, just people being more competitive, I think everything's speeded up. So it's very hard to compete just on a particular product characteristic. Um, so things have changed. And you see this now in the way that companies, and particularly the larger companies are competing. They're trying to identify you know, areas where they, they own a particular characteristic. So um, you know, the classic one is Apple who are trying to own cool. Um, and they're trying to be the coolest brand. And if you want a phone, that's the phone everybody wants. Nobody is really comparing the latest Samsung Galaxy against the latest iPhone. Nobody does that. Nobody does a, a specification comparison. Nobody cares. Um, and the reason is, is because those phones are more or less about the same and Apple might be a bit better and then Samsung might be a bit better. But the two are always looking at each other and always competing. And I think that, that example of Apple is really good because they've realized it's not about the product. It's much more about how people see the brand. When you look at, at manufacturing, particularly you know in our sector in, in business to business, um, it's it's harder to go for these very aspirational things like the the coolest product, um, you know, to have the you know the trendiest semiconductor. I think would would be very difficult to claim. But what uh, companies are doing today is they're trying to show you know how they approach the development of products, how they approach their manufacturing, and why that's going to be good not only today but in the future. And that might be, you know, anything from focusing around sustainability, 
which is you know one area that a lot of companies are really focusing on as a differentiator um, all the way through to you know having processes for development of products or having particular design teams um, that work really well I, you can pick almost anything um, in there that you know you have a real differentiator um, and talk about it but I think today it's going to be much more about the company so that that's typically you know how the company works or who's in the company the people rather than it is um, focusing on the products and features and speeds and things about the products and I'm, I'm assuming that an, another area where companies are trying to distinguish themselves is through their uh, diversity and inclusion practices absolutely and diversity and inclusion is, is a you know really important thing um to be honest I, I mean i think it's interesting it's sometimes hard to to differentiate on a diversity inclusion um, uh, practice because um, you quite often can see you've got diversity in you know 15 different ways, but there's one way where you're not actually as diverse as other people. Um, I think what's, what's happening now um, is that diversity and inclusion is moving more towards an entry ticket um, kind of requirement. Um, so if I was advising companies, unless they had something really uniquely special um, that couldn't be replicated. I think just having, you know, good diversity policies um, and employing, you know, a diverse range of people. I mean, to me as a as a customer in business to business, I'm like, if you don't employ the best people, I don't want to do business with you. I mean, it's, it's entry ticket. It's not a benefit. If you're just employing people because they fit a particular demographic because that's your demographic and you feel comfortable, I'm not interested. You, you know, you're walking away from all this talent that you could reach. So, so to me, diversity and inclusion is very interesting. I think it is a a difference between the the states and, and Europe at the moment. Um, there are more companies competing on diversity and inclusion in the states than there are in Europe. Um, I think it's great they're doing it. I mean, the the the, the fact that people bring it to the, the fore is really really important. I think if I was a company using that as a differentiator. I wouldn't want to rely on that for a long time because I just don't see the companies that, that you know, reject diversity as being successful in the long term. I, I wouldn't want to do business with them, and I'm sure you wouldn't. Right. Definitely. It should be standard practice. Um, exactly. So when an economic downturn happens, you know, we're, we're heading into quite a bit of volatility right now, as you know. Um, you know, marketing is is usually the, the first budget that gets cut. Some manufacturers are dealing with disrupted supply chains, you know, some are automating lines to deal with the worker shortage, or they're dramatically, you know, they may be rethinking their product lines. So with when companies go into a survival mode, you know, what actions do you recommend that they take to position themselves? So this is a really interesting question. And a lot of people who come from a marketing background will instantly start talking about um, the impact of marketing in a recession. Um, and in a recession, people tend to cut back. So therefore, there's less competition, less noise. Marketing tends to be more effective. So everybody points to, well, hey, you know, just spend more money on marketing. It's it's going to be long term a good thing. Um, and whilst that's very true, it's often not very good advice for companies because companies quite often literally don't have the money available. Um, and so what we tend to see is we tend to see people moving towards things that are um, more easily measurable and more related to short-term sales rather than long-term. Um, so quite a lot of companies will move into sort of lead generation type activities. It'll be like, I just want people, my sales team can call who are you know potential customers. And that's 
That's probably the right way to go. I mean, I don't think there is a right answer um, for this. Um, I would say the one thing is cutting without thinking is always the wrong way to go. Um, it's very easy to go, right, we're just going to halve our marketing spend. And because we're halving our marketing spend, we'll just half how much we do with each activity. That That's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, you know, you're going to have a constraint. Um, and that constraint, it may be a CEO who doesn't like marketing, who's cutting disproportionately. I'm sorry, you don't have a choice with that. that that's going to happen. Um, or equally, you know, it could be literally the company needs the cash to keep going um, and can't spend the money. Um, and so whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. It's kind of, you know, typically out of the marketer's control. What matters is spending that money intelligently. And I think it's about, you know, understanding two things. One is, what do we need to do to get through this crisis, you know, and, and you, you mentioned survival mode. It's like, what do we do to need to survive? I mean, there's no point having a great brand if the company goes bankrupt. Um, so it's what do we need to, need to do to be, to, to be you know, a, a company that can keep going, that has the money to keep going. Um, and that's number one priority. Um, and then secondly, I think it's about what can we do to make sure at the end of the recession, we come out in good shape. Um, because, you know, recessions are recessions, people cut back on spending. There's not much you can do to change that. It's always going to be tough. Um, but as you come out of recession, that's when the opportunity exists. And I think, you know, particularly manufacturing companies, they need to take advantage of the upturn. It's so hard to see it when you're in that downturn, but it is coming. You know, cycles are called cycles because they cycle back and forth and they're going to happen. Um, and, you know, things will get better. And so I think it is, you know, priority number one, keep the company going. Priority number two, how can we take advantage um, of the upturn? And typically what you're doing to take advantage of the upturn will also benefit you through the recession as well. All right. I appreciate that silver lining. Um, uh, let's let's shift really quickly to um, to your career. I, I was interested in it um, you know, because you did start out in electronic and electrical engineering and uh, and then worked in the semiconductor manufacturing. So how did you make that switch from, uh, and what was the opportunity that, that uh, occurred for you to become this B2B marketing uh, director, CEO? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I started off um, uh, at IDC in engineering. I spent five years, um, was European applications en um, manager. Um, and enjoyed engineering. The problem was it was an American company and I was based in Europe. Um, you know, all the, the engineering basic level and customer support, which is, is where I was, um, was, was outside of the UK. So you get to the point where you either need to move job, you need to become a salesperson or you need to move into marketing. I mean, those were basically the roles we had. Um, and I picked marketing. Um, I figured I may not be a great salesperson, I didn't uh, at the time want to move to the States, I had young children. It was, you know, not, not a great uh, timing for me. And I didn't want to leave the company as well. Um, the thing I liked about engineering particularly was talking about the technology. So I did a lot of um, customer support, a lot of talking about technology. Great thing about marketing was I could do even more talking. Um, so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a logical move for me. Um, and then the company, five years running um, European marketing, and then the company sent me on a, a residential training course, as you do with training courses, you know, everybody goes and has a few glasses of wine on the last night. Um, and somebody, and, and I think they were, they were trying to say they'd never want to be my boss. And they were trying to be polite. They said, you should run your own company, Mike. And I was like, this is a fantastic idea. I can run my own company. No idea how to do it. 
Um, and about two months later, um, the owners of the agency who I was using actually decided to retire and sell. Um, and I just thought, this is ideal timing. You know, I've never worked in an agency. What could go wrong? Um, and the answer is, if you buy a technology agency and you buy it about three weeks before the dot-com crash, the answer is a lot can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then, uh, I mean, what do you think has uh, has been the benefit of having the engineering degree as you've moved forward? So I think there's two benefits. I mean, th there's an easy answer, which is, hey, we work with technology companies, understand the technology. I mean, that, that, that's a simple answer. Um, and having an engineering degree and having experience in engineering does mean that you can pick up new technologies and understand them far better than if you didn't. Um, it also means you're very, very aware of the areas that you don't understand. Um, so, you know, it can be quite kind of humbling at times because you really know you don't understand something. Um, but I think the other thing about engineering is actually the analytical um, and process driven approach. So at Napier, we've built process into how we, we design and develop campaigns. Um, and obviously now, particularly with digital, everything is very analytical. Um, you know, I taught for a while, I taught on a PR course and, uh, you know, my my opening line always was, you know, I'm going to give you the best advice that anyone can give you in a PR degree and you're going to hate it, learn Excel. And I guarantee every student hated it. Um, but but it's true. You know, I think understanding analytics is, is super important um, and engineering definitely gives you that. So I think those two things have been been really key, but but particularly the the engineering approach. I mean, marketing has become much more engineering and much less um, kind of this this fluffy bunny. You know, I like this. I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, trust me approach. It, it's it's much more analytic. And I think that's been great having the engineering background to allow me to be able to do that. Well, I, I definitely ag agree with your perspective about Excel. And, uh, you know, that's that's what makes manufacturing run. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if uh, if someone were interested in, in building their career and you know they're a new engineering graduate, what kind of advice would you give them as they, they embark out uh, into the world? In terms of making their career in marketing or in yes. engineering? In, in both or, or you know, uh, you know, taking what they have and building from that. I mean, I've, I know many business owners who have engineering degrees. And I mean, I think it's a it forms a, a solid basis for a number of different types of careers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting. And um, I, I think there's two sides to this, you know, if you want to, uh, you're an engineer, you want to be an engineering, this is the golden age. Um, I don't think, well, I certainly have never known in my lifetime and probably never before has there been such an acute shortage of really good engineering talent. Um, so to me, it's go out there, do it, you know, obviously learn as much as you can, um, but experience matters hugely in engineering. So, you know, I, I think it's really important um, once you understand the fundamentals to make sure you get some experience. Um, and that can be, you know, obviously moving into a full-time job when you graduate, but also I think looking for placements and internships whilst you're at, at, at university is, is super important um, because that will make it so easy to find a job. Um, and it's a great time to do that. Lots of people want talent. So I, I think you'll find lots of opportunities. Um, if you want to move into marketing, email me, mike at napierb2b.com. We're hiring. We'd love to hear from engineers who want to be in marketing. Um, we would almost always hire a good engineer who wants to be in marketing because it's so hard to find engineers that want to make the switch. Um, and again, 
you know, if you don't want to work with for Napier, it's an amazing time. Um, you've got all these marketing companies that are all freaking out because they've all got to learn Excel and really don't understand it. And as an engineer, you can walk in and you can look at what, what is perceived as complex analytics and, and, you know, it's just something you know and understand and, and, and probably really enjoy being an engineer. So I think, you know, from that point of view, don't write off marketing. Marketing is a, you know, it's a fascinating career. It's it's much less um, subjective than you think it is now. It, it's much, much more objective and it relies a lot on analytics. And that is a skill that you as an engineer can bring to marketing. So, I mean, whichever, you know, direction you want to take your career, now's, now's a great time to, to have an engineering career. Well said. Um, I guess this isn't a curveball if I warn you I was going to ask you this, um, but I have to. Um, so you you would I, I read in in one of your bios about Kim Wilde's mixing desk desk. I mean you know this. I mean was this during her heyday with her song Kids in America in the eighties? It was a little bit after that, but it was still at a time where there were almost fights in the office between and it was between the executives as to who went to, to go and make sure the mixing desk was installed. And needless to say, at the time. I was uh, just an engineer and I didn't get anywhere near the list of people to meet Kim Wilde. But um, yes, it, it, it was certainly, you know, quite exciting at the time. I heard she still performs. Yeah, I think she does. Yeah, yeah. she still tours. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, and anyway, just to be able to, to uh, <laughs> even be, I think, in the mix of that must have been a pretty interesting experience. It's very cool. And I think if you're in, in manufacturing, you know, often it's, it becomes a little, um, impersonal where you're, you're just designing products and products are being made and they're being shipped and, and you don't really necessarily relate to the impact um you know I, and to some extent you know we were selling mixing desks into recording studios and one world recording studios much like the next to be honest it's not that different um but then you get something like kim wilde coming in and you think wow actually you know what, what we're building actually, actually is pretty cool um and i think that's a great thing about manufacturing is when you can get that kind of you know, personal insight as to what you're doing and how that impacts um, other people. That's a that's a really nice feeling, and I, I I certainly really enjoyed it. Well, and that goes back to what what you're doing, you know, and getting those personal insights, you know, for uh, the B two B manufacturing. I mean, it's uh, sort of this nice cycle. Well, Absolutely, and and I mean, that's you know something that I love about marketing is we. We have to go out and we have to find, you know, what a marketing will call case studies, which is, sounds really boring, but actually it's really cool uses of products and really cool uses of technology. Um, you know, we had one client who um, makes uh, power converters, little electronic components that change the voltage. It's, it, you know, it, what they do is really cool, but actually it's not that exciting in terms of, well, voltage goes in, voltage comes out. It's, it's, it's um, you know, just a different voltage. and what was really exciting was when we talked to one of their customers so one of their customers used one of the products the products had particular technical features that they needed um and you know that that was great but these guys were building equipment that sped up the growth of coral reefs so they were actually creating coral reefs in the space for a few years um, and they're doing it for a couple of reasons. One was for tourism, obviously. Um, one was for environmental reasons, you know, building coral reefs where coral reefs are dying off. This is really important. And lastly, it was also to prevent erosion um, around beaches. Um, and so they were creating these amazing coral reefs. And it was just because of, of a client that, that had this little electronic component. Um, and I think, you know, you get to see those exciting applications in marketing. Um, and perhaps that's something that companies 
you know, when they're in manufacturing, ought to be sharing more internally some of those cool stories because they are incredibly motivating. I definitely agree with you. That is a really cool story. Um, so what's next for Napier Group? So um, next things for Napier Group, um, we're opening in the US. We recently um, started in America with um, our first uh, person permanently based over there. Um, so that's really exciting for us. That's um, been intriguing. We've seen um, you know quite a few inquiries, both from uh, current and also new clients there. Um, and it's, it's a new experience for me. We typically work with American uh, companies as our clients, but now we're actually going to work in America. So that's very cool. Um, and then the other thing is, is um, actually the employees are going to own the company. Um, so tomorrow, um, which will probably be a few days ago when people hear this podcast, um, we're actually um, moving the company ownership across to the employees. So the employees will own the company. Um, and that gives them lots of things in, the, in terms of being able to control, you know, to a large extent, the direction of the company, um, but also giving opportunities for potentially earning more money and uh, more profit share. So that that's really exciting to me. Um, it's the first time I talked about it publicly. Um, we're trying to keep it quiet. Um, and I think that that's going to be another big um, push in terms of moving Napier forward. That is incredibly exciting. I, I'm really happy you're able to do that. Um... Well, we'll have to leave it there. I might have to have you come back and let us know how that's going. So thank you, Mike, for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Catherine. Really enjoyed it.